Amen. Amen. I want to I want to experience the words of that song. I want to be in awe of him. Don't you? I want to be in awe of him. I want to I want to I think when we when we are in awe of him, when we catch a glimpse of him, we'll realize we owe all to him. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I hope you're praying and inviting folks for Easter Sunday. And uh, looking forward to sharing the gospel with folks next Sunday. And this Sunday as well. Don't leave yet. Who's the most, who's the most important person you ever had dinner with? I want to hear, so you come to me after the service and tell me. Some of you have been with some pretty highfalutin folks. I was in college and um, I worked for a very famous orthopedic surgeon. He was the president of the National Association of Orthopedic Surgeons, a very famous hand surgeon. He actually performed surgery on Larry Bird and a bunch of other famous people. Now, I was never invited to the dinner But on occasion, I would work as a valet for the dinners that he hosted. So I once met Gomer Pyle. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Some of you are not impressed. Now you know where I get my behavior. My younger brother was at Walter Reed Hospital a few years ago. His family, he and his family and... And uh, they were invited and they had Thanksgiving dinner with Joe Biden and his wife when he was vice president. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Get the politics out of the way. That was impressive, right? That's pretty impressive. This morning, the Lord invites us to have dinner with him. In Matthew chapter 26... Jesus introduces his own supper. Today is Palm Sunday, the day where we remember Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, his last entrance into the city. Five days before his crucifixion, he was riding on an enormous popularity wave. The crowds were ahead of him shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was significant because they were looking for somebody to to sit upon the throne of David. And they just thought Jesus was it. Jesus makes a strategic political mistake on Monday. As he comes into the city... And curses a fig tree and makes it die. He then goes to the temple and starts knocking over furniture. It didn't help his poll numbers at all. He's cleansing the temple on Monday. On Tuesday, Jesus does something that was seemingly impossible. He unites... Three sects of Jews, the Pharisees, who were extraordinarily conservative, strict, 
Jewish adherents. He unites them with the liberal wing of the Jewish faith called the Sadducees. The Pharisees were hyper-strict, hyper-religious. They followed it fiercely. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the angels. They didn't believe in, in any of those wonderful things, life beyond. That's why they were sad, you see. Some of you will get that about lunchtime. But there was another group of Jewish people known as the Herodians who were Jewish people who supported Herod and Rome. And all of these sects were always sort of at odds with one another. But on Tuesday, Jesus successfully unites them against him. And they began to conspire to put him to death. On Wednesday, Judas begins to make arrangements and cut a deal to betray Jesus. On Thursday, Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him to a certain man's house to prepare the, 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 the Passover meal, which they would be celebrating a holiday that weekend. On Friday, Thursday night rather, he goes to Gethsemane, Overnight, he faces six trials, three by the Jews and three by the Romans. By midday on Friday, Jesus is hanging on a cross on Golgotha. Saturday, he lay in the tomb. And Sunday morning, how many of you know what happened? He victoriously came out of the grave. So we're entering into Passion Week. It's a time to remember the events of Jesus between Palm Sunday and His resurrection, it's, it's a time for us to catch a glimpse of the passion with which He lived, with which He ministered, with which He died. And it's a time for us to share in His joy and in His suffering and the work that He has accomplished on our behalf. But I want to begin this, I want to begin this Passion Week this morning by inviting us to the Lord's table. In a few moments, we're going to come together and sit down at the table of the Lord. Not literally, but figuratively, we're going to sit down at the table of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus co-ops an existing holiday, teaches us the significance of it, and what it had been all along but most had never seen, and introduces us to it as his very own meal. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 17, Jesus tells us when this supper took place. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? It tells us in verses 18 and 19 where the supper was held. Jesus said, go into a city, to to the city, to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. In verse 20, we're told who was present at the supper. And it was evening, Jesus reclined at 
table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? Jesus answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Perhaps some of the saddest words in all of Scripture are these next words. Jesus says of the man who would betray him, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the severity of those words? Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, You have said so. In verses 26 through 29, Jesus gives us the meaning of this meal. He says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. All of us are familiar with the painting, the famous painting, The Last Supper. I read an article this week about the, uh, Da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper and 10 things you did not know about that painting. There were some very interesting things. They were, uh, this, this scholar or writer was, was trying to describe the type of fish that was on the table. He pointed out, if you've ever noticed, that Judas is sitting and where Judas's arm is, there was a salt shaker that was knocked over. Uh, there was all sorts of interesting Little tidbits about the Last Supper. Tonight, or this morning rather, Jesus takes us to the very place where this actually happened. In a few moments, we're going to gather at the Lord's table and we're going to be blessed to sit at the table of the Lord. But I think it would be important for us this morning to take a couple minutes and build a groundwork, some foundation around this important this important sacrament that we call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or Communion or the Christian Passover. Let me tell you a couple important things about it this morning uh, as we begin. The first thing I want to tell you is the Lord's Table is rooted in an Old Testament illustration. I'm sure you are aware of that. In verse 17 of Matthew 26, there are two Jewish holidays that are mentioned. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples said to Jesus, where are we going to celebrate Passover? It's a Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread. As you are well aware of, the the, the Jewish people had a long and important relationship with God Almighty. They were the chosen people of God through Abraham, their father. They were the chosen people of God the vehicle through which God was going to send a Messiah for the entire world. It was a plan put in place in the very beginning of time that God chose a man through whom he would bless and that man's family and descendants would become a people 
that from that people would become a Messiah that would redeem and provide redemption for every person who would put their faith in him in the entire world. So the people of God, the Jewish people, the Israelites, had had a long dynamic relationship with the Lord. As you are aware of, about 1,500 years prior to the scripture that we read this morning, the people of Israel had been miraculously delivered out of 430 years of Egyptian bondage. Abraham's descendants through Joseph sojourned down into Egypt and got hung up there and couldn't get back to the Canaan land for 430 years. That's quite a detour, isn't it? The Egyptians were keen to ensure that the Israelite people stayed distinct and didn't get merged. Not only were the Israelites keen to that, but the, but the Egyptians were keen to make sure that the Egyptian people didn't get merged in. And the primary reason was that the Egyptian people used the, the Israelites as slaves. 430 years they spent in slavery. God raised up a man. You know the story. The man Moses. Moses grew up in the palace, right? With Pharaoh's daughter as his mother. Moses, 40 years in the palace, 40 years on the backside of the desert, taking care of his father-in-law's herds. And God lays his hand on Moses and said, I'm going to use you as the man who's going to lead my people out of Egyptian bondage. I just want to stop here and say this morning, God's still laying his hand on people and saying, I want to use you. God's still laying his hand on people. And and, and this is free. I don't know where this came from, but this is free this morning. Some of you think, well, I'm too old. Well, you know, Moses didn't even start his ministry until he was 80. So you guys are in good shape. (laughs) Amen. There's a couple of you in danger, but the rest of you, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. God raised up Moses, laid his hand on him, said, I want to use you. How many of you know that our lives need to count for God? I want to be used of God. And we might, like Moses, wrestle with our own inadequacies, but God took Moses. You know the story. Moses goes back into, the, into Egypt. He goes before Pharaoh. He says, God says, let the Israelites go. And this starts this, this back and forth where Pharaoh says, you can go. No, you can't. And God begins to plague the nation of Egypt. And there are ten plagues. You know the story. And the tenth plague was the plague of death. God told his children, he said, I'm going to send a plague of death. Pharaoh has hardened his heart. And uh, I'm going to plague the nation of Egypt with death. God said to Moses, here are the rules. Here's here's how I want you to do this. When when this happens, Pharaoh's going to let you go. So I want you to get all the people of Israel. I want you to get your act together. I want you to put your sandals on. I want you to buckle your belt. I want you to have a meal. I want you to have this special meal. And what you're going to do is you're going to take this lamb and you're going to sacrifice this lamb and you're going to fix the lamb for your your meal. And you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to put it over your doorpost. And then I'm going to send an angel through, a death angel through Egypt tonight. And that death angel is going to pass over every house that has the blood over the doorpost. You know this story. This is the Old Testament illustration of what Jesus is doing on Passover night. And sure enough, Moses taught the people. The people did what God told them to do. 
They put the, door over, the, the, the blood over their door and every home that had the blood was spared death and every home that did not have the blood, the firstborn of that home was taken in death. Can you imagine the weeping and the wailing the next morning in Egypt? What a tragic thing to consider. God gave the children of Israel specific instructions. Verse 11 of Genesis chapter 12 says, In this manner you shall eat it. This is this meal that God has told them them to prepare. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you will eat it in haste. The 2019 translation of that is, we'd like this to go, please. This is not for here. It is the Lord's Passover. God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. Interesting study. I've been reading a book by Stan Key in the last few days. And he talks about how the plagues, every plague coincided with an Egyptian god. And God was one by one knocking down the Egyptian gods. And God said, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14 goes on to say, this, shall, this day shall be for you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as statutes forever. You shall keep it as a feast. On that day, the Lord established this event known as Passover holiday. Each year for 1,500 years on this day, the people would commemorate the deliverance of the Lord from Egypt, and they would fix a Passover meal. This is the occasion where Jesus and his disciples are in Matthew 26. And let me tell you this morning, it is no coincidence that Jesus is doing this on Passover It is also an illustration that serves to help us understand better the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because the Lord's table is not only illustrated in the Old Testament, the Lord's table signifies for us Christ's completion of the Passover feast. Jesus began this conversation, Jesus uh, began this meal on this day. Every year since the exodus of Egypt, the people of Israel had had this meal together. The people and the priests would celebrate. The priests would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And what Jesus is doing when he sits down, and we read it a moment ago, when he sits down with his disciples, he said, guys, I'm getting ready to change your understanding of this meal that has been ingrained in you since you were born. You're getting ready to see something you've never seen before. And Jesus begins to show them That that whole story in the Old Testament was not some random act. The whole fact that the children of Israel went into Egypt was not some random misunderstanding and misdirected trip. The whole reality of how they were delivered out of Egyptian bondage was an arrow in the Old Testament pointing us to someone who was going to come someday and ultimately deliver us out of sinful bondage. Jesus is saying, guys, for 1,500 years, all these meals have been about me. All these meals have been to show you 
what I'm here to do. Actually, he says, this really isn't just unleavened bread. This really isn't just wine to celebrate some holiday. No, 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 no. I am this bread. I am this bread. I am this wine. My blood is this wine. You and 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 me. Every one of us, by the fall of Adam, as children of God, have been captured into sin's bondage. There's not a person sitting here today under the sound of my voice, whether you're in the chapel watching online, whether you're watching this a week from now, or sitting in this room, there's not a person sitting here under the sound of my voice that, that has not found themselves in the bondage and the slavery of sin. Can I tell you this morning that sin will ensure that you remain in its grip as long as it can. We are the people of Israel. We are the ones who've been held captive. We are the slaves. And Jesus says, guys, this is a beautiful holiday. This is a glorious thing. It's been going on for 1,500 years. But you 12, and one of you's a dud, but you 12 is, are getting ready to learn something brand spanking new. Jesus said, let's have this Passover meal, but I want to tell you something. This whole Passover thing is getting ready to radically change. Because Christ comes to complete it. You see, Christ is the Passover lamb slain for our deliverance from sinful bondage. Christ's blood applied by faith to our hearts brings protection from the penalty of death. Somebody is sitting here today or listening somewhere. And you're saying, you don't know how messed up or how tied up or how restricted or how off course I really am. Can I tell you, if God can get a couple million people out of Egyptian bondage in one night and across the sea on dry land, He can get you out of sin. He can get you out of sin. Christ's promise in this moment to His disciples means there's a new covenant. You see, God had been a promised God all along. He made promise to Noah. He made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to Adam and Eve in the garden. He made a promise to Moses at Mount Sinai. God made a promise to David. And Jesus is establishing a whole new promise upon which we will live our lives in this passage. Luke's Gospel 22, in this same account, Luke says that this is the blood of my New promise. My new covenant. Because Christ is establishing it brand new. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 through 14 tell us the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The new promise. Listen to what it says in verse 11. Day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin... He sat down at the right hand of God and since that time he's waiting for his enemies to become his footstool. For, listen, 
For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is the covenant, the scripture says, I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. I am so grateful that Christ has completed the Old Testament system. Are you with me this morning? And I would say our building committee is really thankful that we don't have to have drainage systems in the sanctuary for all the blood to drain out. And we don't have to build a corral on the backside of the sanctuary to put all your sheep and goats every week when you come to church with your sacrament. Aren't you glad that Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is not about the Old Testament anymore. All of that was pointing to me. I am the bread. I am the unleavened bread. I am the, this is my blood that is being poured out for the sins of many. This is, this is, it's a picture of Jesus complete. Let me say quickly, the Lord's table reminds us of our need of purification. There's an element to this event that Jesus is sharing that is often overlooked, at least in my experience, in my own personal uh, experience, it's often overlooked. But I was reading this week and studying and trying to understand this passage as best I could. And most often we, we talk about the bread being his body and we talk about the, the, the wine being his blood. But in verse 17, there's also a very important role in this story of unleavened bread. Now, aren't you glad you came to church today to learn about unleavened bread? In verse 17, we're told that it was on the first day of unleavened bread that Jesus shares this meal with his disciples. You see, in the Jewish calendar, there was Passover, which was a one-day event. And then that started a seven-day celebration known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Jewish tradition, the eating of unleavened bread commemorates the exodus of Egypt. These two things go hand in hand. If you go to Exodus chapter 12, you can read about the rules for the Passover. If you read in Exodus chapter 13, you'll read about Jesus instituting this whole idea of unleavened bread. And it was a very, there's a very, first of all, a very practical reason why Jesus introduces unleavened bread at the Passover. You remember? They're going to run out of town tonight. And Jesus says, put your sandals on, buckle your belt, eat on the go, get ready to roll. And he says to them, you don't have time to put yeast in your dough for the yeast to rise to make bread. So I want you to make unleavened bread and it'll take 18 minutes, they tell us, to make unleavened bread. Again, they got this this for the road, okay? They they were doing this in a hurry. Deuteronomy chapter chapter 16 and verse 3 says, you shall eat no leavened bread. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread. It's the bread of affliction. It was, it was a, a reminder of their suffering. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. That all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of Egypt. When Jews celebrated the Passover, this was the tradition when Jesus was alive. When, Jesus, when the Jews celebrated Passover, they had to, several days leading up, they had to go throughout their entire house and, and get all the leaven, all the yeast out of their house. I won't say that. I was going to say something funny, but it's not. Uh, I was going to say some of you maybe just need to go home and get all the yeasting barley out of your refrigerator. But anyways, I won't say that. 
Amen. I just totally, completely took a different direction. They had to get all the yeast out of their house. It became, a, it became a tradition. They would eventually hide the last little bit of yeast in their house, and they would have a child. The children would go look for the last little crumb of yeast, and that would be the purification, and then they would have seven days with no leaven in their bread. What does that have to do with us? What is the significance of this? Leaven represented death and decay. The rise of dough is only possible through the process of decay. And Christ is saying, listen, I am the unleavened bread that will never see decay. Leaven represents sin and iniquity or the evil impulses within us. And Christ was perfect and sinless. The unleavened bread is a picture of his holiness and purity and sinlessness. His life and sacrifice was unleavened without the taint or curse of death or sin. After he was buried, he did not see decay. Christ said, this bread is my body. I am pure, holy, righteous, without corruption. I am the bread of life. In the teachings of Jesus and Paul, leaven is most often described as the corruption. Jesus said to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees or the hypocrisy He said they take their faith and they mix in the leaven of hypocrisy. And he said a little leaven messes up the whole batch. Paul says in Galatians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says again in 1 Corinthians 5, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You are really pure and uncorrupt because Christ Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore, listen how Paul makes this spiritual analogy. Let us therefore celebrate the festival serving the Lord's table, not with old leaven, that leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And in this, in, in, in all throughout scripture, leaven represents death and decay. It represents something from the past. It represents sin and corruption. And here's the good news. Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, uh, unleavened bread without corruption. He is the bread that we take. And when we take him by faith, he can purify and cleanse our hearts from corruption. That's a good word this morning. That was hard all week trying to figure out how I was going to say that. I said, how do you talk to people about unleavened bread? It was worse at the 8 o'clock service, but it's, it's, not, it's still not easy at 11, all right? Today we're going to preach about unleavened bread. That's an exciting lesson right there. But when you understand that the unleavened bread is Christ and that it is a call for us to purge our hearts and our minds from the sin, the corruption, and the decay of this world. Listen, and here's the good news. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't sanctify ourselves. The unleavened bread was called the bread of affliction or humility. It represented the suffering in Egypt. And we do not become sanctified either By reforming ourselves or by afflicting ourselves, we are sanctified by trusting in the one who was sinless and perfect and without corruption and trusting in him. He who ate the bread of humility sanctifies us.
Amen. We are saved by grace. And we are sanctified by the sufferings of Jesus who ate the bread of affliction. And the scripture says in Hebrews that he suffered. He suffered outside the camp. He suffered out there with the refuse. Jesus suffered outside so he might sanctify his people. This table is a table that reminds us that we all need purification. Unleavened bread signifies our identification with the Lord in his humility and in his suffering. And it, 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 it represents his identification with us and lending us his righteousness, his purity, and his holiness. It is a reminder that we take, as we take him in faith, we ourselves can be made pure and holy. Christ described this as the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord's table is a reminder of our need and the provision that Christ makes for our purification. Let me close with this. The Lord's table offers a broad invitation. Jesus sat down with and shared this with his disciples. I want you to think about that for a moment. Present at the table were those men who would only hours later scatter and run from him. Present at this supper are deniers and doubters and a betrayer. There were those who were beloved and faithful, quiet and reflective, and then there are those who boasted about their faith. I'll tell you who's at the table. You and me. Represented at that table are all of us. Those who have no business sitting at the table with Jesus. And yet Jesus opens his sacred meal. The introduction of his Passover. To a group of broken individuals. Who dared to put all of their faith. And all of their trust. And all of their hope in him. Can you imagine Jesus say, you sit with me. You sit with me. Jesus' table is a table for those who are broken, for those who are repentant, and those who have put their faith wholeheartedly in Him for their salvation. Isn't it awesome that Jesus lets us sit at his table the table of the Lord should do this for us it should make us humble it should make us humble as I've already indicated we have no business we didn't earn our way to this table this is purely the mercy and the grace of God and our faith resting firmly in Him. It should make us holy. The table of the Lord should make us holy as we repent and confess and allow God the Holy Spirit to cleanse and change and mold and shape and change our behavior, change our thinking patterns. Oh Lord, I come to the table. Can you imagine what Jesus must have been thinking looking around that table? 
Thomas, I need to purify the doubt that's in your heart right now. And I'm going to do that, by the way. But take, eat. Peter, I need to purify the pride. Peter, you don't have any idea what's in your heart. But I'm going to give you something. And through the gospel that I'm going to live out here in the next few hours, in my resurrection and through the Holy Spirit, Peter, you're never going to be the same. Amen. Coming to the table should be a life-changing experience. Coming in faith. Not the, not the, you know we don't teach transubstantiation. There's nothing magical in what's there. The, the power is in the grace of God that is extended through our obedience and our faith in response to the grace of God in our life. And the table gives us hope. It gives us hope. It gives us hope. We can be free from sin. We can be cleansed from the guilt of sin. We can be, we can be set free from the punishment of sin. Hallelujah. The table gives us hope. I'm worthy. I'm worthy not because I'm worthy, but because Christ has saved me a place at the table. I don't deserve to be here, but Christ said, come up here, sit with me. Peter, or Paul rather, says this in his writings in 1 Corinthians. He said, I want you to do this, what we're getting ready to do in a moment. I want you to do this until the coming of the Lord. And so as we stand here this morning and as we come before the table of the Lord, we look back as we've done over the past 30 minutes. And we say, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. We look in and we say, oh, God, would you can cleanse and make me right? Lord, would you fix the challenges in my own heart? And we look forward to a day when the Lord is going to appear. And they, I read in the book of the Revelation, one of the first things we're going to do when the Lord reappears is we're going to go with the Lord and he's taking us all out for dinner. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, what a blessing. What a blessing to come to the Lord's table this morning. Let me pray together and then I'm going to give you some instructions. So Lord, we love you this morning. I thank you for your grace that's been extended to all of us, for the invitation that you've made to us to come and join you at your table. We thank you, Lord, that it's, it's a place of repentance and cleansing. It's a place of worship. It's a place of thanksgiving. And it's a place where we, see, where we receive your grace, Lord, as we look to you in faith. So I pray this today that you would speak to every heart. If there's someone here, Lord, today that doesn't know you, Lord, someone here that doesn't uh, have their faith and trust in you, may even this moment be a time where they say, Lord, I receive you and I ask you to cleanse me and I put all of my faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray today that you would make us stronger, make our faith richer and deeper as we sit with you for a moment at the table pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For more information about Eastlake Community Church, please visit us online at eastlake-church.com or find us on your favorite social media platform at EastlakeSML. Thanks for joining us.